0: Therapy does not have all the answers, and although the majority of this channel has been and will continue to be focused on breaking down psychological and therapeutic principles, I also know that most of us probably are going to need more than that to get to a really good point with our mental health. I know that I certainly have. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that although I have gotten a lot of mileage out of basic therapeutic concepts, I think some of the biggest turning points in my life have had nothing to do with therapy or psychology at all. They've been almost more philosophical in nature, rules or revelations, or I don't even know what to call them exactly. Um, But they don't fit neatly into any particular school of therapeutic thought. So today's gonna be a little bit different. Today, I'm going to share a little bit more of my personal story with you. And I'm gonna talk about some things I have learned in my journey in managing my own mental health that have been absolute game changers for me that don't really fit neatly under any other category. These are some of the most important things I've learned that have absolutely helped me tremendously. And I hope that they do the same for you today. Really quick, if you're new here, I just want to let you know, my name is Dr. Scott. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm the author of the book, For When Everything is Burning, and I'm the owner and CEO of the North Star Psychological Center, which is a private practice in eastern Iowa that focuses on treating moderate to severe depression and anxiety. We offer every level of care from individual outpatient to intensive outpatient programming and everything in between. If you happen to be in the area, please consider looking us up. So eight rules that have changed my life. The first is, there's no space for me in this world unless I make one. What I mean by that is I've spent a lot of time in my life looking for the place where I fit in, trying to find like my people, my peer group, you know, my, I don't know why, but I hate it when people say this, but my tribe. And what I have determined is I don't have one, at least I don't have A pre-made one. What I'm about to say is probably going to sound very like angsty teenager ish. And and the truth is that there is still a little bit of that inside of me. But um, when my kids were really young, like most kids, they had those like shape sorting games, you know, where it's like a it's like a hollow. Excuse me, a hollow box. And then on the top, there's like a star and a square and a triangle and a circle and a few other basic shapes. And each shape only fits in one uh, space, right? If I were a shape, I would be like, I'd have like a star corner and, and then a triangle and then this side would be rounded. And I just, I know I probably sound like I'm trying to say I'm a special little snowflake, but the truth is I have never been the kind of person who fits neatly into any particular category. I think I just have a mix of personality traits and interests and and drives that are that are just not very typical. And I'm not the kind of person who can just go out and find something that already exists and be like yes this is for me. I often find myself in this weird sort of no man's land because especially at this phase in my life my daily functioning and my lifestyle look like a mentally healthy person, right? I'm Um, I have a full-time job. I'm able to take pretty good care of myself. I'm able to care for and provide for my family. So it's from the outside, like everything looks fine. But I still on the inside have a lot of the same thought patterns and emotional reactions as a person who deals with severe depression and anxiety. Like that stuff is more dormant than it used to be, but it's still in there for me. And as a result, I, I still to this day, this might sound weird, but I don't feel comfortable around mentally healthy people. Not, you know, it's not like I feel like they're unsafe or anything like that. I just don't I don't really relate to their thought patterns and to to the way they see the world because there's this whole like extra layer of things that I have to process that people who have never been through the kind of things that we've been through just don't really relate to. Even though at this phase in my life my lifestyle looks like people like that, the truth is I still feel more fellowship, I guess, more, more camaraderie with people who are at really, really low places in their lives. And that's just where I've always felt at home. That's probably why I do what I do. That's probably why I've always preferred to work with people who have more severe symptoms. Um, but even beyond my professional work, it's just, I. there's never been a place where I fit in neatly. And so what I eventually learned is I have to be the one who creates that. If I don't create a space in the world. And I mean this both physically, but also kind of mentally. If I don't create a space in this world where I feel like I belong, then I just simply don't have one. Like it, it it's me or nobody, basically. And I'm guessing that's true for a lot of you as well. What that means functionally, I think is going to vary a lot from person to person. But I know one of the biggest pieces of it for me has really been like creating and then living up to my own expectations. In activity that I have people do a lot in intensive outpatient programming is try to create like a one page job description for what it would take to be you. Like I I know it's kind of weird, but If someone had to, if you were going to like go on vacation from your own life for a year and someone had to step into your shoes and be you, what would the most important qualities or traits or skills that they would need to possess be? And those are the things that I judge myself by. I don't judge myself by other people's standards because no one else actually knows what it's like to be me. I am, I'm a unique being as are we all, but I think some of us are more unique than others. And I fall probably into the more unique category, if that makes sense. So yeah, that was my first revelation really that there is no space for me in this world unless I create it. It, doesn't, it. it hasn't already been prepared for me. I have to be the one to make it. The second rule that I try to live by is an unexciting life in a healthy mind and body, at least to me, feels better than an exciting life in an unhealthy mind and body. And I don't make that statement out of ignorance. I have thoroughly explored both options, believe me. Once upon a time, I felt bored and understimulated and disengaged from life constantly. And I thought the solution to that was to have a more exciting life, to have kind of this wild and crazy party lifestyle. And I tried it a lot and it sucked. It, It absolutely was a nightmare for me partially because I just don't think that's the kind of life I'm built for anyway, but also because living that way took a pretty heavy toll on my physical and mental health, which weren't in great shape before I started that experiment to begin with. And what it ultimately comes down to for me is your mind and your body are the gate. your health, basically. Your health is the gatekeeper of every experience that you will ever have. And every experience that you have is essentially truncated by your own health status. If you're not in good physical or mental health or both, Nothing really feels that good, no matter how objectively good it is. And you can have what looks like an awesome life to other people. You can have this vibrant social life and all these really cool hobbies. Like You can have the kind of life that looks great on social media, right? But no one actually knows how that life feels to you. And at least for me, what I found out was that the compromises in my health that I had to make to live that kind of lifestyle actually created a net negative for me. It was a slow but consistent downhill slide for my overall quality of life. Um, And part of this might be because I'm older now. I mean, I'm 40 years old now, but really, this is something I figured out probably around age 20, 21, and I've been living that way ever since. I live now what a lot of people would probably consider to be a boring life, a pretty regimented life, but I'm a lot healthier and I get so much joy out of this simple, somewhat routine, so-called boring, which really just means stable and predictable life, than I did out of the wild and crazy party lifestyle. That may not be true for everybody, but it is absolutely true for me that an unexciting life in a healthy mind and body feels immeasurably better been an exciting life in an unhealthy mind and body. The third thing I've learned about mental health specifically is this is a matter of life and death, and I have to treat it that way. As with probably everybody who struggled with depression and anxiety for a period of time, I just thought like I wasn't tough enough. I wasn't resilient enough. And I just needed to like, you know, man up and snap out of it. And the more I think about it, it's just, it's such a stupid perspective to take no offense to anyone who's in that mindset because those are very, those are very cultural like sayings and ideologies, right? So if you are thinking or feeling that way, it's probably just because that's something you've heard a lot. But it's, it's seriously, it's so stupid. I mean, just think about it for a second. We're talking about a chronic health condition, okay? And yes, I know it's mental health, but. The only reason that we separate so-called physical health and mental health conditions is so that the the medical discipline can have their relative specialties because our bodies and brains are so complicated, no one can know everything. It is impossible. So we arbitrarily divide it into these categories to allow medical professionals to specialize and obtain a high level of knowledge in some certain area. But the idea that mental health is different than physical health So mental health usually means it relates to your brain, right? Well, what is your brain a part of? Your body. Your brain is part of your physical health. Your brain is in your physical body. Your brain physically exists in this world. It is affected by your physical health. It is affected by things like blood flow and oxygen and caloric energy and rest and physical activity. Furthermore, a lot of mental health conditions do affect your physical functioning. Anxiety affects your body, depression affects your body, PTSD massively affects your body. PTSD is probably just as physical as it is mental. So the idea that like mental health is different somehow doesn't make any sense. So if you had, or you may have like a chronic physical health condition, let's say you have diabetes, okay? Would you tell yourself, you know what, my liver just needs to toughen up. I'm not gonna take my insulin. I'm not gonna watch what I eat. I just need to get used to it. It just needs to learn how to adapt to a normal life. And so I'm gonna just not do things for myself. I'm not not gonna treat my diabetes and my body's just gonna have to adapt. Do you think that would work? Do you think that would help you? Or do you think you would probably die from that? I think you'd probably die from that eventually. Depression, anxiety, any other mental health condition, they're no different. You can't just tough your way out of them. They are physiological. They can be different from person to person, whether it relates to brain structures, brain functioning, neurotransmitters. I may not be able to tell you exactly what's happening inside of your brain, but I do know it's something that's happening inside of you, inside of your body, which means It's arbitrary to say it's a mental health condition. If you don't treat your mental health with the same level of seriousness and urgency that you would treat any other potentially life-threatening chronic health condition, you're gonna be in big trouble. You need to take this stuff seriously. It is not something you can just tough your way out of. It is not something that should be on the back burner. It needs to really be at the forefront of your day as close to all the time every day as possible Or you're probably going to struggle this is a this is a big thing that we're up against and we need to take it very very seriously the fourth thing i learned is that having no peer group is better than having an unhealthy peer group now hopefully you don't have to choose between those two because neither one is great we do know People are social beings. And even the most introverted among us do probably need some level of connection to other human beings to feel happy and healthy and function and thrive. But we don't always have a bunch of great people around us for various reasons in different phases of our lives. Sometimes we just don't have access to the kind of people we need to have access to. And it's easy to think in situations like that, well, I'll just take what I can get. You know, These people aren't Necessarily great influences for me, or aren't the safest, or aren't the most supportive, but they're better than nothing, right? Not necessarily. Nothing is actually, in, in terms of social support, having none is really kind of in the middle. It's not the best, but it is not the worst either. The people who are around you have overt and covert effects on you the way they talk, the way they live, the way they think, the way they feel it all sinks in and it all feels on some level normative to you. The people around you will pull you in the direction that they are going in. And if they are not going in a direction that is agreeable or helpful to you, you are going to get swept along with them. It's like a gravitational pull. There are so many times in my life when I found myself hanging out with people or investing in people who I knew weren't going in the same direction as what I wanted to go in with my own life. And every single time I thought, I can just be me and just hang out with them and and it'll be okay. And it was never okay. It was never okay. I got into so much trouble. I did so many stupid things. I hurt myself in so many ways. In large part, I'm not going to blame other people for what I did. That's not right. But in large part, because of who I was around and what they were doing, because As much as I like to think of myself as an independent thinker, I am affected by what's around me. We all are. There's no way around it. And having a peer group that pulls you away from your goals and your values and the person you want to be is worse than having nobody. Because if you have nobody, yeah, you're lonely, you're isolated, it sucks. And I know I have spent large chunks of my life there but you can at least make sure you're heading in the right direction. So if you have to choose between nobody and people that pull you away from your true self, I would choose nobody every single time. The fifth thing I've learned is envy is ignorance. And this is a super important one in the social media age. What I mean by that is it's so easy to get caught up in these patterns of trying to live up to other people, right, trying to mimic other people's lives and and trying to emulate what they have and trying to follow their lead. But there are so many things you don't know about other people's lives, even people you know in person. And a lot of the time, this envy comes from people we have never even met, right? It's like celebrities or influencers or things like that. When you look at the way someone else's life is portrayed, you are seeing the most surface level analysis of what they have. You don't even know if what they're portraying is real. First of all, I mean, I know you guys probably know this already, but there's so much fake stuff out there, whether it's photoshopped pictures, filters on videos, rented mansions and Lamborghinis. I mean, so much of this stuff is just straight up fake, right? Like they literally don't have the things they're showing that they have. But even when it's not fake, you don't know what they gave up to get it. You don't know what it feels like to them to have it. You don't know if they're happy. You don't know if they're healthy. I could give so many examples. But what I want you to remember at the end of the day is you don't know anybody's life but your own. And when you compare your life, which you actually know intimately, to someone else's life, which you're only seeing a surface level view of, you are essentially comparing a reality to a fantasy because you don't actually know what it's like to be them day in and day out. You're just looking at these little glimpses you have into their life and you're filling in the gaps with what you think it would feel like to be them, but you have no idea what it feels like to be them. Their life might be worse than yours. I know it doesn't look that way, but that means nothing. I mean nothing. There are so many times, especially with people I've known, where for some acute period of time, I've thought, oh, this person has something really good. like there was this, there was a couple who I knew and and they seemed to have this amazing marriage and they were always writing these like poems and love letters to each other on social media. And I remember thinking like, man, are they like, are they more in love than than my wife and I are? We're not doing stuff like that. Like, are, are we, are we falling behind? Like, are we in the roommate phase? I was constantly comparing myself to them. And a couple of years later, they got divorced and it just, it changed my whole viewpoint of what I had seen. What I had interpreted as these just genuine, like spontaneous, uncontrollable expressions of love were actually desperate attempts to save a dying marriage. I didn't know that's what it was. I just thought, man, they just love each other so much. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. That's just one example. I have so many more like that. And if you really think about it, you probably do too. But just keep in mind, you never actually know what's happening in anybody else's life. Therefore, ultimately, envy is ignorance. The sixth thing I've learned is that it's incredibly important to recognize when advice is impractical for you, even if that advice is scientific. I will give you an example of, so. there's someone I I really respect and look up to, but also have to have a big filter with, and that person is Andrew Huberman. I bet a lot of you are familiar with him already absolutely brilliant man, puts out a ton of incredible, compelling research on mental health and physical health and essentially how to live our best lives. And he approaches it from a very scientific perspective. Like, here's what the data says. The thing that frustrates me about him sometimes is that some of his data is impractical, at least for me in my life. So there's two areas that come up a lot um, in his research that I, I just can't apply. The first is he talks a lot about sunlight. And he talks about the importance of getting sunlight within the first 30 minutes of your day. And I know that what he is saying is technically correct. I've seen some of the same data he's looking at. And yeah, it does help us a lot. But that's not practical for everybody. I mean, I get up at 530 in the morning. I live in eastern Iowa and it's December. I wake up about two and a half hours before the sun comes up right now. And there's no way around that. Because the mornings are the only time that I can do a lot of the things I need to do before my kids wake up and before I have to go to work. Many of us, that's a specific situation to me, but like, what, what are you supposed to do? The sun rises at a different time throughout the year. And most of us don't have that kind of lifestyle flexibility, right? Like you can't just call up your boss or talk to your kids and be like, hey, um, the sun is coming up later. So I'm gonna need to sleep in later so that I'm not awake for too long in the morning when it's dark out. So if you guys could just like not start work until after the sun comes up, that would be great. Or tell your kids, guys, I really need you to sleep in till eight o'clock because the sun's not up until then. And I, I can't be up too soon before the sun. So just, if you could just do that, that'd be great. Thank you. You know, I feel like a lot of this stuff is out of touch, honestly. Or this isn't Huberman, but there was someone else I was following. He's like, make sure to get outside and get direct sun exposure every day. It was negative 20 here, not that long ago. I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to have my skin exposed to that. Like this dude lived in Dubai or something. Sometimes people aren't good at realizing that not everyone can do what they do and that their lifestyle, I don't always like this word, but it's it's on point sometimes. Some people have a very privileged lifestyle and, and in their advice to others, they fail to recognize that not everyone has that. Another area that I see a lot of, you know, I think well-meaning advice on, but, but it's difficult to apply is relationships. Like so often I see, you know, here are the core factors of your mental health. It's, you know, sleep hygiene, physical activity, nutrition, relationships is almost always in there. And it always sticks out like a, a sore thumb to me because it's, it's not one that we have conscious control over, you know, like, oh, when I was making myself in, in the creative character, I forgot to give myself a bunch of awesome relationships. Like, whoops, I'll just go back and change that. You know, like I can't just manifest a bunch of awesome, supportive people in my life, kind of like we talked about before. You don't have control over that. And I I tend to think that most people who don't have a lot of great relationships in their life, it's not because they don't want to or don't care or don't see the value in it. It's because they don't have those people. And it, it just always feels really out of place to me to say, oh, you need to have healthy relationships. Like, oh, thanks. Didn't realize that was important. I'll just go have those now. So... Take, you know, take everything with a grain of salt, because a lot of the people who are trying to tell you how to live don't actually understand your lifestyle. And although these things would help in theory, you just might not have access to some of them. So try to pick and choose what actually fits and works for you rather than getting really rigid or perfectionistic about it and trying to live up to standards that just aren't going to work. The seventh thing I've learned, and this one definitely came recently to me, is if you try to do everything, you end up being bad at everything. And what this always makes me think of, and this is a metaphor, is, is a garden hose, right? Take a garden hose and turn the water on full. And if you just hold the hose, even full water pressure, you know, comes out pretty low pressure. It just kind of falls to the ground, right? But if you take that same amount of water, when you put your thumb over the end of the hose so that there's just a tiny little opening, suddenly that water's coming out with so much force that it hurts, right? And potentially can even like strip paint or, or siding, strip, it strips things off things. I'd lost my way there, but you, you know what I'm saying. It's the same amount of water, but it's more narrowly focused. And when it becomes more narrowly focused, it becomes dramatically more powerful we are the same in our in our lives. When you have, you know, four or five different things you're passionate about and a bunch of relationships you're trying to maintain and three or four hobbies you're trying to keep up with, you end up feeling ineffective at absolutely everything. I see, this is something I see on social media every single day, especially like people I think, you know, around my age, you know, 30s and 40s who have maybe young kids and are still, maybe still finding their footing in their career is like, you feel like you're failing at everything. You feel like you're not giving enough of yourself to anything, not even one area in your life. Like, how am I supposed to take care of my health and my family and do my job and take care of my house and manage my money and have friendships? It's, I think a lot of the time when you feel that way, I mean, life is hard, don't get me wrong. Like, I think you're always gonna feel that way to some extent, if you have a lot of things in life that you care about, but it's so easy to get caught up in trying to do too much. And at least for me, I found that cutting down dramatically on the range of things that I care about has made me so much more effective at all the things I do care about. I do still constantly feel like I'm falling short, and some of that's just probably because I'm a perfectionist. But I feel so much more effective in my family, so much more healthy physically and mentally, so much more effective at my job, now that I've cut out a lot of frivolous things in my life just to give a random example i don't play fantasy football anymore and sure it was kind of fun and you might think oh that doesn't that's not a big time commitment you know playing it itself is is a is literally a passive activity right that other people are playing football and you just watch your numbers go up but i'm the kind of person who has to be good at everything so when i was involved in fantasy football i would do hours and hours of research i mean i probably knew more about fantasy football than like mental health like i would i would dive into it so much and it's, it's just not that important to me. It's fun, but it's less important than doing things that actually matter to me. So that's just one random example of something I cut out. But if you're feeling stretched and possibly thin and you're feeling ineffective at every domain of life, even the ones that really matter to you, put your thumb over the end of that hose, cut off things that don't really matter and focus your energy into the areas that matter most. You will become so much more powerful and so much more effective. The last thing I've learned, probably the hardest one, is you never know when you'll be doing something for the last time, and you will be shocked at how much you miss it. This one carries a lot of grief for me, but there's two things in particular that I think about with this one, uh, and they both relate to my childhood. One is the farm that my grandparents grew up on, and the other is spending time uh, in Minnesota with my siblings. I remember distinctly, The last time I did each of those things uh, as a child anyway, and I know that in each case, I was in the middle of a lot of teenage angst and and thinking about girls and friends and all this stuff. And I just took these really important things in my life incredibly for granted. Had I known for each of those that that was going to be the last time I did them, I would have treated them completely differently. Try to treat this might sound kind of dark and depressing honestly but i have gotten a lot of value from trying to treat everything i do like it at least potentially is the last time that i might do that thing because i don't ever want to be caught off guard again by that that by that grief by that realization that like that thing is gone that thing is gone from your life forever and the last time you got to do it you weren't even very mentally and emotionally invested in it you took it for granted, you let it slip under your radar, and now you don't have it anymore. And and it hurts. It really hurts to look back on things like that. I don't have a lot more to say about that one because it's something I'm still working on, to be honest with you. But And the last thing is you never really know when you'll be doing something for the last time, and you never really know how much you will miss it when it's gone. My two favorite things to do growing up were to go to northern Minnesota with my family and to go to my grandparents' farm. Those were really the only two times I was ever, like, happy as a kid. And as I got into adolescence, I kind of lost interest in those things. And I know that the last time I did both of them, I was really, like, aloof and disengaged and just didn't care about any of it. And looking back on it, that might be the biggest regret I have in my entire life, and that might seem like I have a very privileged life, and I suppose in some ways I do, but those things were both just so precious to me, and I completely failed to appreciate when they were coming to an end. I didn't get what I should have out of them the last few times I was able to do them, And I think to some degree, I will probably carry those regrets with me for the rest of my life. So this might sound kind of dark or kind of morbid, but every time I'm doing something that matters to me, whether it's an activity or a location or a relationship, I try to keep some level of awareness that this could be the last time I ever get to do this thing. I try not to go too far with that Because if you get too far with that, it gets really dark and like nihilistic and unhelpful to a person with depression. But you don't want to be completely unaware of it either, because otherwise you end up being caught really off guard by grief you didn't even see coming. I do this with little things too, like... You know, my daughter's seven and she still reads somewhat like children's books. And every time I read a book to her, even if it's, you know, we've read this book a hundred times and I'm kind of like tired of this book and would theoretically like to read a different book. I also know what if this is the last time that I ever read this specific book to her? Or what if this is the last time I ever read to her, period, because she can read now. So really, she's just letting me read to her to kind of humor her to some degree. And no matter how many times I read Walter's Wonderful Web to Her, no matter how many times, no matter how tired I am of that book, I know that 10 years from now, I'm going to see that book and I'm going to just sob openly because I'm going to realize, oh, that's over, that's done. That that, that chapter of your life has fully closed and you're never going to get to open it again except in your mind. And I'm going to grieve that. So I try to treat everything important to me in my life As something that will eventually be worth grieving, not because I want to be sad about it, but because I want to appreciate it, because I don't ever want for the last time I get to do something to be something I do grudgingly or or disconnectedly ever again, because I've had a really hard time moving past my grief about those two things. And if I did it again with other things that were important to me, I think that would really set me back. So that's a tool I use to try to more fully appreciate the things that I have today. So I hope that these eight rules are helpful to you or anywhere near as helpful to you as they were to me, because all of these have been absolutely life changing for me. Each one of these has created a turning point and all of them stacked on top of each other has created an amount of change in my life that is almost incomprehensible. Um, Like I am I am an unrecognizable person compared to the person I was before I knew these things, and I hope they help you as much as they've helped me. Take care, and I'll see you next time.